Chapter Three of Isaac Walton's Lives of John Donne, Henry Wotton, Richard Hooker, and George Herbert by Isaac Walton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Richard Hooker, Part One. Life of Mr. Richard Hooker, Introduction. I have been persuaded by a friend whom I reverence and ought to obey to write the life of Richard Hooker, the happy author of five, if not more, of the eight learned books of The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. And though I have undertaken it, yet it hath been with some unwillingness, because I foresee that it must prove to me, and especially at this time of my age, a work of much labor to inquire, consider, research, and determine what is needful to be known concerning him for I knew him not in his life, and must therefore not only look back to his death, now sixty-four years past, but almost fifty years beyond that, even to his childhood and youth, and gather thence some observations and prognostics as may at least adorn, if not prove necessary, for the completing of what I have undertaken. This trouble I foresee, and foresee also that it is impossible to escape censures against which I will not hope my well-meaning and diligence can protect me. For I consider the age in which I live, and shall therefore but entreat of my reader a suspension of his censures till I have made known unto him some reasons which I myself would now gladly believe do make me in some measure fit for this undertaking, and if these reasons shall not acquit me from all censures, they may at least abate of their severity, and this is all I can probably hope for. My reasons follow. About forty years past, for I am now past the seventieth of my age, I began a happy affinity with William Cramner, now with God, grand-nephew unto the great archbishop of that name, a family of noted prudence and resolution. With him and two of his sisters I had an entire and free friendship. One of them was the wife of Dr. Spencer, a bosom friend and sometime com-pupil with Mr. Hooker, in Corpus Christi College in Oxford, and after president of the same. I name them here, for that I shall have occasion to mention them in the following discourse, as also George Cramner, their brother, of whose useful abilities my reader may have a more authentic testimony than my pen can purchase for him, by that of our learned Camden and others. This William Cramner and his two forenamed sisters had some affinity and a most familiar friendship with Mr. Hooker, and had had some part of their education with him in his house when he was a parson of bishops born, near Canterbury, in which city their good father then lived. They had, I say, a part of their education with him, as myself since that time, a happy cohabitation with them, and having some years before read part of Mr. Hooker's works with great liking and satisfaction, my affection to them made me a diligent inquisitor into many things that concerned him. Inquiry, 
hath given me much advantage in the knowledge of what is now under my consideration, and intended for the satisfaction of my reader. I had also a friendship with the Reverend Dr. Usher, the late learned Archbishop of Armagh, and with Dr. Morton, the late learned and charitable Bishop of Durham, as also with the learned John Hales of Eton College, and with them also, who loved the very name of Mr. Hooker, I have had many discourses concerning him, and from them and many others that have now put off mortality, I might have had more informations if I could then have admitted a thought of any fitness for what by persuasion I have now undertaken. But though that full harvest be irrecoverably lost, yet my memory hath preserved some gleanings, and my diligence made such additions to them, as I hope will prove useful to the completing of what I intend, in the discovery of which I shall be faithful, and with this assurance put a period to my introduction. It is not to be doubted but that Richard Hooker was born at Heavytree, near or within the precincts, or in the city of Exeter, a city which may justly boast that it was the birthplace of him and Sir Thomas Bodley, as indeed the county may, in which it stands, that it hath furnished this nation with Bishop Jewell, Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh, and many others, memorable for their valour and learning. He was born about the year of our redemption, 1553, and of parents that were not so remarkable for their extraction or riches as for their virtue and industry, and God's blessing upon both, by which they were enabled to educate their children in some degree of learning, of which our Richard Hooker may appear to be one fair testimony, and that nature is not so partial as always to give the great blessings of wisdom and learning, and with them the greater blessings of virtue and government, to those only that are of a more high and honourable birth. His complexion, if we may guess by him at the age of forty, was sanguine with a mixture of choler, and yet his motion was slow even in his youth, and so was his speech, never expressing an earnestness in either of them, but a humble gravity suitable to the aged. And it is observed, so far as inquiry is able to look back at this distance of time, that at his being a schoolboy he was an early questionist, quietly inquisitive why this was and that was not to be remembered, why this was granted and that denied. This being mixed with a remarkable modesty and a sweet serene quietness of nature, and with them a quick apprehension of many perplexed parts of learning, imposed then upon him as a scholar, made his master and others to believe him to have an inward blessed divine light, and therefore to consider him to be a little wonder. For in that children were less pregnant, less confident, and more malleable than in this wiser but not better age. This meekness and conjuncture of knowledge, with modesty in his conversation, 
being observed by his schoolmaster, caused him to persuade his parents, who intended him for an apprentice, to continue him at school till he could find out some means by persuading his rich uncle or some other charitable person to ease them of a part of their care and charge, assuring them that their son was so enriched with the blessings of nature and grace that God seemed to single him out as a special instrument of his glory. And the good man told them also that he would double his diligence in instructing him, and would neither expect nor receive any other reward than the content of so hopeful and happy an employment. This was not unwelcome news, and especially to his mother, to whom he was a dutiful and dear child, and all parties were so pleased with this proposal that it was resolved so it should be. And in the meantime his parents and master laid a foundation for his future happiness by instilling into his soul the seeds of piety, those conscientious principles of loving and fearing God, of an early belief that he knows the very secrets of our souls, that he punishes our vices and rewards our innocence, that we should be free from hypocrisy, and appear to man what we are to God, because first or last the crafty man is catched in his own snare. These seeds of piety were so seasonably planted, and so continually watered with the daily dew of God's blessed Spirit, that his infant virtues grew into such holy habits as did make him grow daily into more and more favor, both with God and man, which, with the great learning, that he did after attain to, hath made Richard Hooker honored in this, and will continue him to be so to succeeding generations. This good schoolmaster, whose name I am not able to recover, and am sorry, for that I would have given him a better memorial in this humble monument, dedicated to the memory of his scholar, was very solicitous with John Hooker, then Chamberlain of Exeter, and uncle to our Richard, to take his nephew into his care, and to maintain him for one year at the university, and in the meantime to use his endeavours to procure an admission for him into some college, though it were but in a mean degree, still urging and assuring him that his charge would not continue long, for the lad's learning and manners were both so remarkable that they must of necessity be taken notice of, and that doubtless God would provide him some second patron that would free him and his parents from their future care and charge. These reasons, with the affectionate rhetoric of his good master, and God's blessing upon both, procured from his uncle a faithful promise that he would take him into his care and charge before the expiration of the year following, which was performed by him, and with the assistance of the learned Mr. John Jewell, of whom this may be noted, that he left, or was about the first of Queen Mary's reign, expelled out of Corpus Christi College in Oxford, of which he was a fellow, 
for adhering to the truth of those principles of religion to which he had assented and given testimony in the days of her brother and predecessor edward the sixth and this john jewel having within a short time after a just cause to fear a more heavy punishment than expulsion was forced by forsaking this to seek safety in another nation and with that safety the enjoyment of that doctrine and worship for which he suffered but the cloud of that persecution and fear ending with the life of queen mary the affairs of the church and state did then look more clear and comfortable so that he and with him many others of the same judgment made a happy return to england about the first of queen elizabeth in which year this john jewel was sent a commissioner or visitor of the churches of the western parts of this kingdom and especially of those in devonshire in which county he was born and then and there he contracted friendship with john hooker the uncle of our richard about the second or third year of her reign this john jewel was made bishop of salisbury and there being always observed in him a willingness to do good and to oblige his friends and now a power added to his willingness this john hooker gave him a visit in salisbury and besought him for charity's sake to look favourably upon a poor nephew of his whom nature had fitted for a scholar but the estate of his parents was so narrow that they were unable to give him the advantage of learning and that the bishop would therefore become his patron and prevent him from being a tradesman for he was a boy of remarkable hopes and though the bishop knew men do not usually look with an indifferent eye upon their own children and relations yet he assented so far to john hooker that he appointed the boy and his schoolmaster should attend him about easter next following at that place which was done accordingly and then after some questions and observations of the boy's learning and gravity and behaviour the bishop gave his schoolmaster a reward and took order for an annual pension for the boy's parents promising also to take him into his care for a future preferment which he performed for about the fifteenth year of his age which was anno fifteen sixty seven he was by the bishop appointed to remove to oxford and there to attend dr cole then president of corpus christi college which he did and dr cole had according to a promise made to the bishop provided for him both a tutor which was said to be the learned dr john reynolds and a clerk's place in that college which place though it were not a full maintenance yet with the contribution of his uncle and the continued pension of his patron the good bishop gave him a comfortable subsistence and in this condition he continued unto the eighteenth year of his age still increasing in learning and prudence and so much in humility and piety that he seemed to be filled with the holy ghost and even like st john baptist to be sanctified from his mother's womb who did often bless the day in which she bare him about this time of his age, 
he fell into a dangerous sickness, which lasted two months, all which time his mother, having notice of it, did in her hourly prayers as earnestly beg his life of God as Monica, the mother of St. Augustine, did that he might become a true Christian, and their prayers were both so heard as to be granted which Mr. Hooker would often mention with much joy, and as often pray that he might never live to occasion any sorrow to so good a mother, of whom he would often say he loved her so dearly that he would endeavor to be good even as much for hers as for his own sake. As soon as he was perfectly recovered from this sickness, he took a journey from Oxford to Exeter, to satisfy and see his good mother, being accompanied with a countryman and companion of his own college, and both on foot, which was then either more in fashion, or want of money, or their humility made it so. But on foot they went, and took Salisbury in their way, purposely to see the good bishop, who made Mr. Hooker and his companion dine with him at his own table which Mr. Hooker boasted of with much joy and gratitude when he saw his mother and friends. And at the bishop's parting with him, the bishop gave him good counsel and his benediction, but forgot to give him money, which when the bishop had considered, he sent a servant in all haste to call Richard back to him. And at Richard's return, the bishop said to him, Richard, I sent for you back to lend you a horse which hath carried me many a mile, and I thank God with much ease, and presently delivered into his hand a walking-staff with which he professed he had travelled through many parts of Germany. And he said, Richard, I do not give, but lend you my horse. Be sure you be honest, and bring my horse back to me at your return this way to Oxford and I do now give you ten groats to bear your charges to Exeter, and here is ten groats more which I charge you to deliver to your mother, and tell her I send her a bishop's benediction with it, and beg the continuance of her prayers for me. And if you bring my horse back to me, I will give you ten groats more to carry you on foot to the college, and so God bless you, good Richard." and this you may believe was performed by both parties but alas the next news that followed mr hooker to oxford was that his learned and charitable patron had changed this for a better life which happy change may be believed for that as he lived so he died in devout meditation and prayer and in both so zealously that it became a religious question whether his last ejaculations or his soul did first enter into heaven. And now Mr. Hooker became a man of sorrow and fear, of sorrow for the loss of so dear and comfortable a patron, and of fear for his future subsistence. But Dr. Cole raised his spirits from this dejection by bidding him go cheerfully to his studies, and assuring him he should neither want food nor raiment, which was the utmost of his hopes, for he would become his patron, 
and so he was for about nine months, and not longer, for about that time this following accident did befall Mr. Hooker. Edwin Sandys, sometimes Bishop of London and after Archbishop of York, had also been, in the days of Queen Mary, forced by forsaking this to seek safety in another nation, where for some years Bishop Jewell and he were companions at bed and board in Germany, and where, in this their exile, they did often eat the bread of sorrow, and by that means they there began such a friendship as lasted till the death of Bishop Jewell, which was in September 1571 a little before which time the two bishops meeting jewel had an occasion to begin a story of his richard hooker and in it gave such a character of his learning and manners that though bishop sandys was educated in cambridge where he had obliged and had many friends yet his resolution was that his son edwin should be sent to corpus christi college in oxford and by all means be pupil to Mr. Hooker, though his son Edwin was not much younger than Mr. Hooker then was. For the bishop said, I will have a tutor for my son that shall teach him learning by instruction and virtue by example, and my greatest care shall be of the last, and God willing this Richard Hooker shall be the man into whose hands I will commit my Edwin and the bishop did so about twelve months, or not much longer, after this resolution. And doubtless, as to these two, a better choice could not be made. For Mr. Hooker was now in the nineteenth year of his age, had spent five in the university, and had, by a constant unwearied diligence, attained unto a perfection in all the learned languages, by the help of which, an excellent tutor, and his unintermitted studies, he had made the subtlety of all the arts easy and familiar to him, and useful for the discovery of such learning as lay hid from common searchers. So that by these, added to his great reason, and his restless industry, added to both, he did not only know more of causes and effects, but what he knew, he knew better than other men, and with this knowledge he had a most blessed and clear method of demonstrating what he knew, to the great advantage of all his pupils, which in time were many, but especially to his two first, his dear Edwin Sandys and his dear George Cramner, of which there will be a fair testimony in the ensuing relation this for mr hooker's learning and for his behaviour amongst other testimonies this still remains of him that in four years he was but twice absent from the chapel prayers and that his behaviour there was such as showed an awful reverence of that god which he then worshipped and prayed to giving all outward testimonies that his affections were set on heavenly things this was his behavior towards god and for that to man it is observable that he was never known to be angry or passionate or extreme in any of his desires 
never heard to repine or dispute with Providence, but by a quiet, gentle submission and resignation of his will to the wisdom of his Creator, bore the burden of the day with patience, never heard to utter an uncomely word, and by this, and a great behavior which is a divine charm, he begot an early reverence unto his person, even from those that at other times and in other companies took a liberty to cast off that strictness of behavior and discourse that is required in a collegiate life. And when he took any liberty to be pleasant, his wit was never blemished with scoffing, or the utterance of any conceit that bordered upon, or might beget, a thought of looseness in his hearers. Thus mild, thus innocent and exemplary, was his behavior in his college, and thus this good man continued till his death, still increasing in learning, in patience, and piety. In this nineteenth year of his age, he was, December 24, 1573, admitted to be one of the twenty scholars of the foundation, being elected and so admitted as born in Devon or Hampshire, out of which counties a certain number are to be elected in vacancies by the founder's statutes. And now, as he was much encouraged, so now he was perfectly incorporated into this beloved college, which was then noted for an eminent library, strict students, and remarkable scholars. And indeed it may glory that it had Cardinal Poole, but more that it had Bishop Jewell, Dr. John Reynolds, and Dr. Thomas Jackson of that foundation. The first famous for his learned Apology for the Church of England, and his defense of it against Harding, the second for the learned and wise manage of a public dispute with John Hart, of the Romish persuasion, about the head and faith of the Church, and after printed by consent of both parties, and the third for his most excellent Exposition of the Creed, and other treatises all such as have given great satisfaction to men of the greatest learning. Nor was Dr. Jackson more noteworthy for his learning than for his strict and pious life, testified by his abundant love and meekness, and charity to all men. And in the year 1576, February 23, Mr. Hooker's grace was given him for Inceptor of Arts, Dr. Herbert Westphaling, a man of note for learning, being then vice-chancellor, and the act following he was completed master, which was anno 1577, his patron, Dr. Cole, being vice-chancellor that year, and his dear friend Henry Saville, of Merton College, being then one of the proctors. T'was that Harry Saville that after was Sir Henry Saville, warden of Merton College, and provost of Eton. He, which founded in Oxford two famous lectures, and endowed them with liberal maintenance. It was that Sir Henry Saville that translated and enlightened the history of Cornelius Tacitus with a most excellent comment, and enriched the world by his laborious 
and chargeable collecting the scattered pieces of st chrysostom and the publication of them in one entire body in greek in which language he was a most judicious critic it was this sir henry savile that had the happiness to be a contemporary and familiar friend to mr hooker and let posterity know it and in this year of fifteen seventy seven he was so happy as to be admitted fellow of the college happy also in being the contemporary and friend of that dr john reynolds of whom i have lately spoken and of dr spencer both which were after and successively made presidents of corpus christi college men of great learning and merit and famous in their generations nor was mr hooker more happy in his contemporaries of his time and college than in the pupilage and friendship of his edwin sandys and george cramner of whom my reader may note that this edwin sandys was after sir edwin sandys and as famous for his speculum europae as his brother george for making posterity beholden to his pen by a learned relation and comment on his dangerous and remarkable travels and for his harmonious translation of the psalms of david the book of job and other poetical parts of holy writ into most high and elegant verse and for cramner his other pupil i shall refer my reader to the printed testimonies of our learned mr camden of fines morrison and others this cramner says mr camden in his annals of queen elizabeth whose christian name was george was a gentleman of singular hopes the eldest son of thomas cramner son of edmund cramner the archbishop's brother he spent much of his youth in corpus christi college in oxford where he continued master of arts for some time before he removed and then betook himself to travel accompanying that worthy gentleman sir edwin sandys into france germany and italy for the space of three years and after their happy return he betook himself to an employment under secretary davison a privy councillor of note who for an unhappy undertaking became clouded and pitied after whose fall he went in place of secretary with sir henry killigrew in his embassage into france and after his death he was sought after by the most noble lord mountjoy with whom he went into ireland where he remained until in a battle against the rebels near collingford an unfortunate wound put an end both to his life and the great hopes that were conceived of him he being then but in the thirty-sixth year of his age betwixt mr hooker and these his two pupils there was a sacred friendship a friendship made up of religious principles which increased daily by a similitude of inclinations to the same recreations and studies a friendship elemented in youth and in a university free from self-ends which friendships of age usually are not and in this sweet this blessed this spiritual amity they went on for many years and as the holy prophet saith so they took sweet counsel together and walked in the house of god as friends 
by which means they improved this friendship to such a degree of holy amity as bordered upon heaven, a friendship so sacred that when it ended in this world it began in the next, where it shall have no end. And though this world cannot give any degree of pleasure equal to such a friendship, yet obedience to parents and a desire to know the affairs, manners, laws, and learning of other nations, that they might thereby become the more serviceable unto their own, made them put off their gowns and leave the college and Mr. Hooker to his studies, in which he was daily more assiduous, still enriching his quiet and capacious soul with the precious learning of the philosophers, casuists, and schoolmen, and with them the foundation and reason of all laws, both sacred and civil, and indeed with such other learning as lay most remote from the track of common studies. And as he was diligent in these, so he seemed restless in searching the scope and intention of God's Spirit revealed to mankind in the sacred scripture, for the understanding of which he seemed to be assisted by the same spirit with which they were written. He that regardeth truth in the inward parts, making him to understand wisdom secretly. And the good man would often say that God abhors confusion as contrary to his nature, and as often say that the scripture was not writ to beget disputation and pride and opposition to government, but charity and humility, moderation, obedience to authority, and peace to mankind. Of which virtues he would as often say, no man did ever repent himself on his deathbed. And that this was really his judgment did appear in his future writings, and in all the actions of his life. Nor was this excellent man a stranger to the more light and airy parts of learning, as music and poetry, all which he had digested and made useful, and of all which the reader will have a fair testimony in what will follow. In the year 1579 the Chancellor of the University was given to understand that the public Hebrew lecture was not read according to the statutes, nor could be by reason of a distemper that had then seized the brain of Mr. Kingsmill, who was to read it, so that it lay long unread to the great detriment of those that were studious of that language. Therefore the Chancellor writ to his Vice-Chancellor and the University that he had heard such commendations of the excellent knowledge of Mr. Richard Hooker in that tongue, that he desired he might be procured to read it, and he did, and continued to do so till he left Oxford. Within three months after his undertaking this lecture, namely in October 1579, he was, with Dr. Reynolds and others, expelled his college, and this letter, transcribed from Dr. Reynolds, his own hand, may give some account of it. To Sir Francis Knowles, I am sorry, right honourable, that I am enforced to make unto you such a suit which I cannot move, but I must complain of the unrighteous dealing of one of our college, 
who hath taken upon him against all law and reason to expel out of our house both me and mr hooker and three other of our fellows for doing that which by oath we were bound to do our matter must be heard before the bishop of winchester with whom i do not doubt but we shall find equity howbeit forasmuch as some of our adversaries have said that the bishop is already forestalled and will not give us such audience as we look for therefore i am humbly to beseech your honour that you will desire the bishop by your letters to let us have justice though it be with rigour so it be justice our cause is so good that i am sure we shall prevail by it thus much i am bold to request of your honour for corpus christi college sake or rather for christ's sake whom i beseech to bless you with daily increase of his manifold gifts and the blessed graces of his holy spirit your honours in christ to command john reynolds london october ninth fifteen seventy nine this expulsion was by dr john barfoot then vice-president of the college and chaplain to ambrose earl of warwick i cannot learn the pretended cause but that they were restored the same month is most certain i returned to mr hooker in his college where he continued his studies with all quietness for the space of three years about which time he entered into sacred orders being then made deacon and priest and not long after was appointed to preach at st paul's cross in order to which sermon to london he came and immediately to the shunammite's house which is a house so called for that besides the stipend paid the preacher there is provision made also for his lodging and diet for two days before and one day after his sermon this house was then kept by john churchman sometime a draper of good note in watling street upon whom poverty had at last come like an armed man and brought him into a necessitous condition which though it be a punishment is not always an argument of god's disfavour for he was a virtuous man i shall not yet give the like testimony of his wife but leave the reader to judge by what follows but to this house mr hooker came so wet so weary and weather-beaten that he was never known to express more passion than against a friend that dissuaded him from footing it to london and for finding him no easier a horse, supposing the horse trotted when he did not, and at this time also such a faintness and fear possessed him that he would not be persuaded two days' rest and quietness, or any other means, could be used to make him able to preach his Sunday sermon. But a warm bed and rest and drink proper for a cold, given him by Mrs. Churchman, and her diligent attendance added unto it enabled him to perform the office of the day which was in or about the year fifteen eighty one and in this first public appearance to the world he was not so happy as to be free from exceptions against a point of doctrine delivered in his sermon which was 
that in God there were two wills, an antecedent and a consequent will. His first will, that all mankind should be saved, but his second will was, that those only should be saved, that did live answerable to that degree of grace which he had offered or afforded them. This seemed to cross a late opinion of Mr. Calvin's, and then taken for granted by many that had not a capacity to examine it, as it had been by him before, and hath been since, by Master Henry Mason, Dr. Jackson, Dr. Hammond, and others of great learning, who believe that a contrary opinion entrenches upon the honour and justice of our merciful God. How he justified this I will not undertake to declare, but it was not accepted against, as Mr. Hooker declares in his rational answer to Mr. Travers, by John Elmore, then Bishop of London, at this time one of his auditors, and at last one of his advocates too, when Mr. Hooker was accused for it. But the justifying of this doctrine did not prove of so bad consequence as the kindness of Mrs. Churchman's curing him of his late distemper and cold, for that was so gratefully apprehended by Mr. Hooker that he thought himself bound in conscience to believe all that she said so that the good man came to be persuaded by her that he was a man of tender constitution and that it was best for him to have a wife that might prove a nurse to him such a one as might both prolong his life and make it more comfortable and such a one she could and would provide for him if he thought fit to marry and he not considering that the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light, but, like a true Nathaniel, fearing no guile, because he meant none, did give her such a power as Eleazar was trusted with. You may read it in the book of Genesis, when he was sent to choose a wife for Isaac. For even so he trusted her to choose for him, promising upon a fair summons to return to London and accept of her choice, and he did so in that or about the year following. Now the wife provided for him was her daughter, Joan, who brought him neither beauty nor portion, and for her conditions they were too like that wife's, which is by Solomon compared to a dripping house, so that the good man had no reason to rejoice in the wife of his youth, but too just cause to say with the holy prophet, Woe is me that I am constrained to have my habitation in the tents of Kedar. This choice of Mr. Hooker's, if it were his choice, may be wondered at, but let us consider that the prophet Ezekiel says, There is a wheel within a wheel, a secret, sacred wheel of providence, most visible in marriages, guided by his hand that allows not the race to the swift nor bread to the wise nor good wives to good men and he that can bring good out of evil for mortals are blind to this reason only knows why this blessing was denied to patient job to meek moses and to our meek and patient mr hooker but so it was 
and let the reader cease to wonder, for affliction is a divine diet, which, though it be not pleasing to mankind, yet Almighty God hath often, very often, imposed it as good though bitter physic to those children whose souls are dearest to him. And by this marriage the good man was drawn from the tranquillity of his college, from that garden of piety, of pleasure, of peace, and a sweet conversation, into the thorny wilderness of a busy world, into those corroding cares that attend a married priest and a country parsonage, which was Drayton Beecham in Buckinghamshire, not far from Aylesbury, and in the diocese of Lincoln, to which he was presented by John Cheney, Esquire, then patron of it, the ninth of December, 1584, where he behaved himself so as to give no occasion of evil, but as St. Paul adviseth a minister of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in anguishes, in necessities, in poverty, and no doubt in long-suffering, yet troubling no man with his discontents and wants. And in this condition he continued about a year, in which time his two pupils, Edwin Sandys and George Cramner, took a journey to see their tutor, where they found him with a book in his hand, it was the Odes of Horace, he being then, like humble and innocent Abel, tending his small allotment of sheep in a common field, which he told his pupils he was forced to do then, for that his servant was gone home to dine and assist his wife to do some necessary household business. But when his servant returned and released him, then his two pupils attended him unto his house, where their best entertainment was his quiet company, which was presently denied them, for Richard was called to rock the cradle, and the rest of their welcome was so like this that they stayed but till next morning, which was time enough to discover and pity their tutor's condition. And they, having in that time rejoiced in the remembrance, and then paraphrased on many of the innocent recreations of their younger days, and other like diversions, and thereby given him as much present comfort as they were able, they were forced to leave him to the company of his wife Joan, and seek themselves a quieter lodging for next night. But at their parting from him, Mr. Cramner said, Good tutor, I am sorry your lot is fallen in no better ground as to your parsonage, and more sorry that your wife proves not a more comfortable companion after you have wearied yourself in your restless studies. To whom the good man replied, My dear George, if saints have usually a double share in the miseries of this life, I, that am none, ought not to repine in what my wise Creator hath appointed for me, but labour, as indeed I do daily, to submit mine to His will, and possess my soul in patience and peace. At their return to London, Edwin Sandys acquaints his father, who was then Archbishop of York, with his tutor's sad condition, and solicits for his removal to some benefice that might give him a more quiet and a more comfortable subsistence, 
which his father did most willingly grant him when it should next fall into his power. And not long after this time, which was in the year 1585, Mr. Alvey, master of the temple, died, who was a man of a strict life, of great learning, and of so venerable behavior, as to gain so high a degree of love and reverence from all men, that he was generally known by the name of Father Alvey. And at the temple reading, next after the death of this Father Alvey, he, the said Archbishop of York, being then at dinner with the judges, the reader, and the benchers of that society, met with a general condolement for the death of Father Alvey, and with a high commendation of his saint-like life, and of his great merit both towards God and man. And as they bewailed his death, so they wished for a like pattern of virtue and learning to succeed him. And here came in a fair occasion for the bishop to commend Mr. Hooker to Father Alvey's place, which he did with so effectual an earnestness, and that seconded with so many other testimonies of his worth, that Mr. Hooker was sent for from Drayton Beecham to London, and there the mastership of the temple proposed unto him by the bishop as a greater freedom from his country cares, the advantages of a better society, and a more liberal pension than his country parsonage did afford him. But these reasons were not powerful enough to incline him to a willing acceptance of it. His wish was rather to gain a better country living, where he might see God's blessing spring out of the earth, and be free from noise, so he expressed the desire of his heart, and eat that bread which he might more properly call his own, in privacy and quietness. But notwithstanding this averseness, he was at last persuaded to accept of the bishop's proposal, and was by patent for life, this you may find in the temple records, made master of the temple, the 17th of March, 1585, he being then in the thirty-fourth year of his age. And here I shall make a stop and that the reader may the better judge of what follows, give him a character of the times, and temper of the people of this nation, when Mr. Hooker had his admission into this place, a place which he accepted rather than desired, and yet here he promised himself a virtuous quietness, that blessed tranquillity which he always prayed and labored for, that so he might in peace bring forth the fruits of peace, and glorify God by uninterrupted prayers and praises. For this he always thirsted and prayed. But Almighty God did not grant it, for his admission into this place was the very beginning of those oppositions and anxieties which till then this good man was a stranger to and of which the reader may guess by what follows. In this character of the times I shall, by the reader's favor and for his information, look so far back as to the beginning of the reign of Queen Elizabeth, a time in which the many pretended titles to the crown, the frequent treasons, the doubts of her successor, 
the late civil war, and the sharp persecution for religion that raged to the effusion of so much blood in the reign of Queen Mary, were fresh in the memory of all men, and begot fears in the most pious and wisest of this nation, lest the like days should return again to them or their present posterity. And the apprehension of these dangers begot a hearty desire of a settlement in the church and state, believing there was no other probable way left to make them sit quietly under their own vines and fig-trees, and enjoy the desired fruit of their labours. But time and peace and plenty begot self-ends, and these begot animosities, envy, opposition, and unthankfulness for those very blessings for which they lately thirsted, being then the very utmost of their desires, and even beyond their hopes. This was the temper of the times in the beginning of her reign, and thus it continued too long, for those very people that had enjoyed the desires of their hearts in a reformation from the Church of Rome, became at last so like the grave as never to be satisfied, but were still thirsting for more and more, neglecting to pay that obedience and perform those vows which they made in their days of adversities and fear. So that in short time there appeared three several interests, each of them fearless and restless in the prosecution of their designs. They may for distinction be called the active Romanists, the restless nonconformists, of which there were many sorts, and the passive, peaceable Protestants. The councils of the first, considered and resolved on in Rome, the second, both in Scotland, in Geneva, and in diverse selected, secret, dangerous conventicles, both there and within the bosom of our own nation. The third pleaded and defended their cause by established laws, both ecclesiastical and civil, and if they were active it was to prevent the other two from destroying what was by those known laws happily established to them and their posterity. I shall forbear to mention the very many and dangerous plots of the Romanists against the Church and State because what is principally intended in this digression is an account of the opinions and activity of the nonconformists, against whose judgment and practice Mr. Hooker became at last, but most unwillingly, to be engaged in a book-war, a war which he maintained not as against an enemy, but with the spirit of meekness and reason in which number of nonconformists, though some might be sincere well-meaning men, whose indiscreet zeal might be so like charity as thereby to cover a multitude of their errors, yet of this party there were many that were possessed with a high degree of spiritual wickedness, I mean with an innate restless pride and malice. I do not mean the visible carnal sins of gluttony and drunkenness and the like, from which, good Lord, deliver us, but sins of a higher nature, because they are more unlike God, who is the God of love and mercy and order and peace, and more like the devil, 
who is not a glutton, nor can be drunk, and yet is a devil. But I mean those spiritual wickednesses of malice and revenge, and an opposition to government, men that joyed to be the authors of misery, which is properly his work, that is the enemy and disturber of mankind and thereby greater sinners than the glutton or drunkard, though some will not believe it. And of this party there were also many whom prejudice and a furious zeal had so blinded as to make them neither to hear reason nor adhere to the ways of peace, men that were the very dregs and pest of mankind, men whom pride and a self-conceit had made to overvalue their own pitiful, crooked wisdom so much as not to be ashamed to hold foolish and unmannerly disputes against those men whom they ought to reverence, and those laws which they ought to obey, men that labored and joyed first to find out the faults, and then speak evil of government, and to be the authors of confusion men whom company and conversation and custom had at last so blinded and made so insensible that these were sins that like those that perished in the gainsaying of korah so these died without repenting of these spiritual wickednesses of which the practices of coppinger and hackett in their lives and the death of them and their adherents are god knows two sad examples, and ought to be cautions to those men that are inclined to the like spiritual wickednesses. And in these times, which tended thus to confusion, there were also many of these scruple-mongers that pretended a tenderness of conscience, refusing to take an oath before a lawful magistrate, and yet these very men in their secret conventicles did covenant and swear to each other to be assiduous and faithful in using their best endeavours to set up the Presbyterian doctrine and discipline, and both in such a manner as they themselves had not yet agreed on, but up that government must. To which end there were many that wandered up and down, and were active in sowing discontents and sedition, by venomous and secret murmurings, and a dispersion of scurrilous pamphlets and libels against the church and state, but especially against the bishops, by which means, together with venomous and indiscreet sermons, the common people became so fanatic as to believe the bishops to be antichrist, and the only obstructors of God's discipline. And at last some of them were given over to so bloody a zeal, and such other desperate delusions, as to find out a text in the revelation of St. John, that Antichrist was to be overcome by the sword. So that those very men that began with tender and meek petitions proceeded to admonitions, then to satirical remonstrances, and at last, having like Absalom, numbered who was not and who was for their cause, they got a supposed certainty of so great a party 
that they durst threaten first the bishops and then the queen and parliament, to all which they were secretly encouraged by the Earl of Leicester, then in great favour with her majesty, and the reputed cherisher and patron-general of these pretenders to tenderness of conscience his design being by their means to bring such an odium upon the bishops as to procure an alienation of their lands and a large proportion of them for himself which avaricious desire had at last so blinded his reason that his ambitious and greedy hopes seemed to put him into a present possession of lambeth house and to these undertakings the nonconformists of this nation were much encouraged and heightened by a correspondence and confederacy with that brotherhood in scotland so that here they became so bold that one mr daring told the queen openly in a sermon she was like an untamed heifer that would not be ruled by god's people but obstructed his discipline and in scotland they were more confident for there vide bishop spotwood's history of the church of scotland they declared her an atheist and grew to such a height as not to be accountable for anything spoken against her nor for treason against their own king if it were but spoken in the pulpit showing at last such a disobedience to him that his mother being in england and then in distress and in prison and in danger of death the church denied the king their prayers for her and at another time when he had appointed a day of feasting the church declared for a general fast in opposition to his authority to this height they were grown in both nations, and by these means there was distilled into the minds of the common people such other venomous and turbulent principles as were inconsistent with the safety of the church and state. And these opinions vented so daringly that, beside the loss of life and limbs, the governors of the church and state were forced to use such other severities as will not admit of an excuse if it had not been to prevent the gangrene of confusion and the perilous consequences of it, which without such prevention would have been first confusion and then ruin and misery to this numerous nation. These errors and animosities were so remarkable that they begot wonder in an ingenious Italian, who being about this time come newly into this nation, and considering them, writ scoffingly to a friend in his own country to this purpose, that the common people of England were wiser than the wisest of his nation, for here the very women and shopkeepers were able to judge of predestination and to determine what laws were fit to be made concerning church government, and then what were fit to be obeyed or abolished, that they were more able, or at least thought so, to raise and determine perplexed cases of conscience than the wisest of the most learned colleges in Italy, that men of the slightest learning and the most ignorant of the common people were mad for a new or super or re-reformation of religion, and that in this they appeared like that man 
who would never cease to whet and whet his knife till there was no steel left to make it useful. And he concluded his letter with this observation, that those very men that were most busy in oppositions and disputations and controversies and finding out of the faults of their governors had usually the least of humility and mortification or of the power of godliness. And to heighten all these discontents and dangers there was also sprung up a generation of godless men, men that had so long given way to their own lusts and delusions, and so highly opposed the blessed motions of his spirit and the inward light of their own consciences, that they became the very slaves of vice, and had thereby sinned themselves into a belief of that which they would but could not believe, into a belief which is repugnant even to human nature. For the heathens believe that there are many gods, but these had sinned themselves into a belief that there was no god, and so, finding nothing in themselves but what was worse than nothing, began to wish that they were not able to hope for, namely, that they might be like the beasts that perish, and in wicked company, which is the atheist sanctuary, were so bold as to say so, though the worst of mankind, when he is left alone at midnight, may wish, but is not then able, to think it. Into this wretched, this reprobate condition, many had then sinned themselves. And now, when the church was pestered with them, and with all those other forenamed irregularities, when her lands were in danger of alienation, her power at least neglected, and her peace torn to pieces by several schisms and such heresies as do usually attend that sin, for heresies do usually outlive their first authors, when the common people seemed ambitious of doing those very things that were forbidden and attended with most dangers, that thereby they might be punished and then applauded and pitied, when they called the spirit of opposition a tender conscience and complained of persecution because they wanted power to persecute others. When the giddy multitude raged and became restless to find out misery for themselves and others, and the rabble would herd themselves together and endeavor to govern and act in spite of authority. In this extremity of fear and danger of the church and state, when to suppress the growing evils of both, they needed a man of prudence and piety, and of a high and fearless fortitude, they were blessed in all by John Whitgift, his being made Archbishop of Canterbury, of whom Sir Henry Wotton, that knew him well in his youth, and had studied him in his age, gives this true character, that he was a man of reverend and sacred memory, and of the primitive temper, such a temper as when the church, by lowliness of spirit, did flourish in highest examples of virtue, and, indeed, this man proved so. 
and though I dare not undertake to add to this excellent and true character of Sir Henry Wotton, yet I shall neither do right in this discourse nor to my reader, if I forbear to give him a further and short account of the life and manners of this excellent man. And it shall be short, for I long to end this digression, that I may lead my reader back to Mr. Hooker, where we left him at the temple. John Whitgift was born in the county of Lincoln, of a family that was ancient and noted to be both prudent and affable, and gentle by nature. He was educated in Cambridge. Much of his learning was acquired in Pembroke Hall, where Mr. Bradford, the martyr, was his tutor. From thence he was removed to Peterhouse, from thence to be master of Pembroke Hall, and from there to the mastership of Trinity College, about which time the Queen made him her chaplain, and not long after prebend of Ely, and then dean of Lincoln, and having for many years past looked upon him with much reverence and favour, gave him a fair testimony of both by giving him the bishopric of Worcester, and which was not with her a usual favour for giving him his first fruits, then by constituting him vice-president of the Principality of Wales, and having experimented his wisdom, his justice, and moderation in the manage of her affairs in both these places, she, in the twenty-sixth of her reign, 1583, made him Archbishop of Canterbury, and, not long after, of her privy council, and trusted him to manage all her ecclesiastical affairs and preferments. In all which removes he was like the ark, which left a blessing on the place where it rested, and in all his employments was like Jehoiada, that did good unto Israel. These were the steps of this bishop's ascension to this place of dignity and cares, in which place, to speak Mr. Camden's very words in his Annals of Queen Elizabeth, he devoutly consecrated both his own life to God and his painful labours to the good of his church. And yet in this place he met with many oppositions in the regulation of church affairs, which were much disordered at his entrance by reason of the age and remissness of Bishop Grinda. His immediate predecessor, the activity of the nonconformists, and their chief assistant, the Earl of Leicester, and, indeed, by too many others of the like sacrilegious principles. With these he was to encounter, and though he wanted neither courage nor a good cause, yet he foresaw that without a great measure of the Queen's favour it was impossible to stand in the breach that had been lately made into the lands and immunities of the Church, or indeed to maintain the remaining lands and rights of it and therefore by justifiable sacred insinuations such as st paul to agrippa agrippa believest thou i know thou believest he wrought himself into so great a degree of favour with her as by his pious use of it hath got both of them a great degree of fame in this world and of glory in that into which they are now both entered End of chapter 3 
part one